this sentence, you know, don't believe your mind, encapsulates the whole path. It doesn't mean you know, that we don't use our mind for making decisions, booking tickets, you know, signing up for retreats. Of course, we do need the mind, but we don't need to be used by it. And for this, you know, we have the, the Buddha's teaching, a whole path, really, which takes care of all of the uh, things which are coming up. And I have another of the Terikata here, and it's a Bhadra Terikata, Bhikkhuni Bhadra. And she says, Having gone forth out of faith, Appreciate your blessings, Badra. Develop skillful qualities for the sake of that unsurpassed safety from all that holds you back. So there's like two things which stand out, you know, like develop skillful qualities and appreciate your blessings. Those two, you know, they work together. And, uh, you know, the, the, the skillful qualities, the most central quality is certainly sati, or mindfulness, awareness. You know, so we can become aware, you know, whatever is going on in the mind, and then make an informed decision how to deal with this, what to do with this. You know, where am I right now? And where do I want to go with my life? And what fits in, in order to stay on course to where I want to go? That's also why it's important, you know, to be really clear about the motivation of the practice. So where am I? And where do I want to go? And what fits, you know, to take me in that direction? And that, you know, needs to be happening in the practice sitting, the formal practice and walking or whatever meditation practice we are doing, plus also in our daily lives. And that's why we do the meditation, you know, the formal meditation, so that our power for awareness, mindfulness becomes so strong that we can also stay conscious in daily life because that's really where we do, you know, make a lot of actions by body, speech and mind. And that's where we can accumulate either wholesome tendencies or we can strengthen unwholesome tendencies. So being aware of what's happening in the meditation and in the daily life and then decide what to do with it. That's why we practice, really. And that's what the Noble Eightfold Path is all about. So how do I relate to my experience? And the experience self is actually secondary. But it's the way, how do I relate to it? And what do you know, what do I do with it? And another very important factor besides mindfulness is, is joy. Or like in this poem, it's called, you know, appreciate your blessings, Padra. Joy. Because it opens up the mind. Joy has this uplifting uh, effect on the mind. And it makes a lot of space. 
joy or awe, we can also call it sometimes, you know. It doesn't have to be like, you know, crazy joy about, you know, which we can feel if we win in the lottery or something like that, but it's more that very subtle joy which comes from, you know, consciously being in the present moment when we don't want anything, when the mind isn't leaning towards something or leaning away from something, but when the mind is really fully in the present moment, it's accompanied by this very subtle joy, which is actually one of the seven factors of awakening. So it's a, it has a very powerful function in our you know, capacity to really stay on course, because it gives us space. And I'm sure, you know, if you consciously experience joy, it has this uplifting quality and the heart area opens up and then suddenly, you know, everything is, is still the same, but it has another dimension to it. And that's what I, you know, was speaking about, what I feel when I come into this forest, for example, because so much care has gone into this and so many people have practiced here. It's kind of exuding that, quality, you know, which for a loss of words I call it, let's say, joy, or I can call it, you know, spiritual uh, uplift or whatever we want to call it. But I think we just need to really feel it. So it's very important because it allows us to step back from the ego, you know, from the grabbing onto the ego, because there's more space, we can step back and then we can see conditionality. And that seeing of conditionality is what frees, really. If we see that because of this, that arises, and because of that, this arises, and see, you know, how everything is mutually conditioning, and then we can see that, you know, there is actually nobody there, but it's just like a net of causes and conditions and if we know how to work with this we can make a difference and if there's no space around experience if there's no joy we can't see that because it's all like this like you know being very passionately attached to something you can't see anything you can only see that thing and that you want it but there's no space there's no sensitivity there's a lot of grasping and a lot of dukkha, really. So stepping back and seeing the conditioned nature of the experience of I and anything, you know, results in letting go because the mind is adjusting. If the mind really sees clearly, it will naturally adjust because the mind itself is also within the world of conditionality. And yesterday, I think, or was it the day before, I think actually, you know, I was giving the guided meditation and I was uh, saying, you know, when the mind is really in the present moment, not leaning into anything or leaning away, that we call the temporary liberation of the mind. And my first teacher called it like a little Nibbana, like giving a taste of the goal of the practice. And I think it's really important to reflect on that experience of that subtle joy which comes actually from letting go, from not wanting anything. Because it's like 
counterintuitive, you know, in our culture because joy is all about you know, if you get the right thing, if you buy the right thing, then you're going to be happy. And this teaching says, you know, if you don't run after anything, if you just let go and see what comes, there is this subtle joy which comes from not wanting anything. And I always remember there's a beautiful cartoon, maybe you've seen it, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama you know, gets a Christmas present and he opens it up and it's empty, the box. And he said, oh, that's what I always wanted. <laughs> so that kind of joy, you know, which is uh, nobody can endanger that, only our own minds, you know, because it's everywhere. And uh, so to reflect on that, you know, subtle joy of the temporary liberation of the mind, I think it's very important to familiarize ourselves with that truth because it's so counterintuitive in the beginning. So that's what the word bhavana, the Pali word bhavana means to cultivate, to familiarize. And in the Tibetan tradition, gom means also to familiarize ourselves with something so that the mind gets used to the fact and adjusts. You know, let's go of wrong views and really takes in what is actually, what really makes the mind happy. It's not, you know, gaining anything. What really makes the mind happy is to let go. And we really need to see that for ourselves to really have total conviction that this is the direction to go. Because the whole culture bombards us with the exactly opposite information and it's so enticing and, you know, the whole advertisement industry is so kind of sophisticated that it's really hard, you know, to not be touched by that messages. Some of them are really super amazing, you know. I rem when I sometimes drive into San Francisco, for example, the advertisements, you know, for let's see, iPhones or so. It's extremely slick, extremely um, catches me, you know, because that kind of beauty, I, I respond. But then my mind always, you know, comes in and also I, I'm very conscious of it, how I, how I get uh, really, I really could believe this, you know, if I would know better. So depending, you know, what kind of, approach we have to art, what we think is beautiful, in that area we are actually, we can be caught if we don't stay conscious. And then even if we can still use art and all of those uh, modalities, you know, which we have developed in order to use it to uplift the mind and to create some space so that we can step back and see more clearly. And I think that's the original function of art, really, you know, to connect the mind to something much bigger than itself. You know, in worship, I suppose, you know, in the beginning of, uh, you know, ancient humans doing cave paintings and all kinds of, uh, you know, art, which was there in order to give a sense of awe, really. You know, they had, for example, those uh, caves in the south of France, you know, one has to kind of climb into the cave through a little opening, you know, and make yourself really small and then you come out and then you kind of, you look up and there's all of that amazing um, 
uplifting, you know, depiction of uh, what life was at that time. And that really opens the mind up. And then there's suddenly some more space to experience oneself, you know, no longer as the center of the universe, but just as a player, maximally, you know. And that's actually what the Dhamma also wants to communicate to us. You know, we are not the center of the universe. And, and then the mind, if the mind really sees it clearly, it naturally responds, it adjusts. That's the good news, you know, because the mind also underlies those laws of nature, just as anything else, you know. And we can't just beat the mind into obeyance, you know, that doesn't really work. We have to also kind of, you know, uplift the mind and, and show the way, you know, like when you train a child or a, a, a dog or anything, you know, you need to, cannot only do it with brutal force, you have to do it with, with a lot of skill. And that's, you know, what's meant with really re consciously reflecting on the temporary liberation of the mind and the subtle joy which comes from that. And that's what I meant, you know, when I was speaking about the refinement of our innate drive to happiness, because we all want happiness. We just are quite misguided, you know, how to, how to get to it. So that's why we need to show, consciously stop and look at that which is hard to see. That's why we need a teaching, that's why we need teachers, because it would take us much longer alone, you know, to find that. And uh, so, you know, when the mind sees clearly, it does adapt. And there is even, you know, like a, a concept for that in the teaching, in the, in the Abhidhamma, it's called Anuloma Chitta, which is adaptation chitta, adaptation moment. And that moment flashes up, you know, immediately before one of those four fruit moments I was speaking about, you know, the levels of awakening, you know, before the mind basically lets go of those fetters, there is this adaptation moment where the, where the Dhamma is really seen, where, you know, we see to the bottom of the ocean for a moment, and then the water rushes in again, but it's going to be less powerful. Because there has been this adaptation moment, you know, where those fetters have been permanently let go of. And afterwards, you know, the mind of that individual is changed forever. And, and this adaptation to truth happens through stepping back and letting go. And in the scriptures, you know, even children were able to do this. So it's not, it doesn't have a lot to do with the intellect. Of course, you know, we need to have enough intelligence to understand the science, to understand the basic of the teachings, but it doesn't need to be like a very complex, you know, intellectual building in order to encapsulate the essence of the teaching, because as I said before today, even, you know, it is all about letting go. That's not so complicated, really. But different people you know, with different backgrounds need different complexities in order to trust something, also in order for the mind you know, to wrap itself around it. So, but there have been very, very simple examples you know, in the scriptures. For example, the simile of the cloth, 
you know, where there was one uh, monk, you know, who couldn't kind of remember any of the teachings. He, he just could not learn them by heart. So he felt quite, you know, frustrated and went to the Buddha and then the Buddha gave him a piece of white cloth and he said, just, you know, rub that cloth and and contemplate, you know, and he would do that. And then the cloth would get ever more dirty, you know, over the weeks because he was rubbing it like that. And then he had, had an insight into impermanence. That was all he had. So there's all kinds of possibilities, or even, you know, small um, novice monks. Because this, this fruit moment, you know, is basically a stepping out for a moment, stepping out, not being there for a moment. And that's, you know, when we see to the bottom of the ocean for a moment, and then whoosh, the whole water rushes back in again. But we have seen it. We have seen the Dhamma. And that, you know, we never forget again. And the temp temporary liberation of the mind, you know, which I was speaking about in the meditation and we'll do also this afternoon. This is when the ego just goes into abeyance, you know, like, like when you have, you know, go for a long walk with your dog and then you come home and the dog just lies down and is, is quiet. You know, doesn't need any attention. Or like, you know, you have a, a very active child and you go for a long walk and then you come back home and it just goes to sleep. It's like that, you know. But then we need to really notice that. And through, you know, um, reflecting in that way, step by step, we leave behind those constructs you know, which are just projections of our expectations and of our prejudices and of our fears, you know. And when the ego goes to sleep, let's say, in the temporary liberation of the mind, then we have a taste of how it is, you know, if it's not dominating. Because, you know, if we're feeling under... You know, if you really believe those prejudices and fears and expectations, then we, we create, we create our reality. For example, you know, if I'm afraid of somebody, you know, thinking this or that about me, and then I meet them with that fear, it's kind of not unlikely, you know, that I'm going to, through my behavior and through my expectations, co-create with that person exactly the situation I, I don't want. That's kind of odd. because of the narrowness of the mind, you know, because the mind can only, you know, think about that fear and there's just no space. And then you're going to say, you're going to do, you're gonna, your presence is going to create it. But if we have a real interest in the situation, where does that fear come from? Why, you know, do I, why I'm so tense and so on? If we really can stay with that, even not why, but what's happening in the present moment. If there's interest, then the spaciousness remains, you know. And that's exactly what we need. We need that spaciousness. And joy is a very good um, creator of spaciousness. And um, my, you know, my first teacher, Buddha Dasa, he always, he said, you know, 
we were going to receive his teaching in the mornings at five o'clock. And then we would walk back to the meditation center and he would always say, you know, walk without a walker, sit without a sitter. And I, you know, did not understand what he meant, but it kind of rang true to me. You know, it has stayed with me ever since, which is like about 30 years now, you know, walk without a walker. So, you know, whenever that ego comes up, you know, just notice it and, and just drop it. And they're still walking. We don't need an ego to walk. So, you know, that's something to reflect on in the movement meditation today. Walk without a walker. And over the years, you know, I have come back to that again and again. And, and somehow I understand it better and better what is meant, you know. And he also said, live without a liver. And because his English was pretty good, so he knew exactly what he was saying, so that was very funny. <laughs> so, and I just want to now end with the um, <clears throat> poem by Medi Weingast. And it's called, and it's inspired by the Patra Terikata, and it's called Lucky. You always considered yourself lucky because things seemed to work out the way you wanted. Now, luck has a different meaning. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment, regardless of how things work out or don't. Because, you know, it's not about what we are experiencing, but how we are experiencing it. Because no matter what it is, it always displays those three characteristics. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self or emptiness. And that's the key to liberation, the key to letting go to really understand those three characteristics those three Dharma gates. And then it doesn't really matter, you know, which phenomenon, which experience has brought that to you. Because all phenomena yield liberation as their essence. There's no exception. Good or bad doesn't apply on the path. So we can sit another 15 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.